conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a, the sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, this is very important for the context, verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you that we've gathered here in your name and in order to hear from you. We desperately need you, Lord, individually, as a church, and as a nation. We ask you to take the words that are here in print and Lord as they're taught press them deeply into our spirits that we may be changed into Christ likeness more when we leave than we were when we came thank you for your faithfulness Lord and we love you we tell you we love you and thank you for loving us first in Jesus name amen thank you please be seated I always enjoy anything that stirs up my patriotism, and certainly the 4th of July does. But as I approached preparing this message and what I should give to you on this occasion of the celebration of our independence as a nation, I'm moved that what we need in this country is not more savvy politicians. We need more godly Christians. And as, if we, as followers of Jesus, would make a declaration of dependency, then the world might be able to see a little more clearly who Jesus is. Because God's goal is to redeem a people for himself. That is why we're here. There's one thing the church does on earth that she can't do in heaven, and that's evangelize. God's goal is to redeem a people for himself. That's why he's redeemed you and me. Because his method of doing this is you and me. Now you might be thinking, well, that's 
That's a method with a lot of holes in it. You're right about that. <laughs> We're the holes. But God has a lot of experience of accomplishing his will through flawed vessels. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. Well, look at verse 27 again. Here is a reminder of the context. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is what Paul is reminding us here. The world needs to see Jesus in us, but they have a problem. And the New Testament speaks specifically of that problem with people in the world. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are blind to spiritual truth. They cannot perceive these things on their own. Therefore, God gives them a visual aid in you and me. <laughs> and he takes, it's like if you've ever bought a precious, like, like a ring or, or a, some sort of uh, gem-studded jewel. What does the jeweler do? He takes it and he places it on a dark background. Why? So that all the attention of your eye goes to the beauty of the gem. That's exactly what God is doing when you, as God's people, experience difficulty in the world because God is placing his gems, G-E-M, that's you and me, on a dark background so that our conduct can be worthy of the gospel, so that also we can suffer for his sake. And what is his sake? That others would see who he is and be redeemed and glorify him together as his people. Identifying with Christ in this world will of a certainty produce some level of adversity. I promise you that. This is why he begins in chapter 2 with this series of if clauses because it's very, very important, and you have this in your notes. It's very important for us as God's people to realize and appreciate what God has given us in the church because we are not called. We Americans, we are fiercely independent people. And even when we come to this book to interpret it, we begin to interpret it individually. How many of you have been in a Bible study where somebody said, well, to me this means... <laughs> Scratch out the to me part. It just means something. And, and really it means for us, God's people. This is why he says, it's very important here in verse 1 to understand that the grammatical construction here in the original language assumes a yes answer. Okay? Now read it like this. If there's any consolation in Christ, and there is. Can you say that with me? And there is. This is your cue, okay? If there's any comfort of love... If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, yeah, these are the things that God has given us in the church. We have all experienced these things, and they are demonstrated through the body of Christ. These things are true, and because they are true, we aim at being Christ-like. He says this, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. God wants the world to see us unified. How are we unified? By being selfless. Now, it's really easy for us to be selfish. That's just the path of least resistance. We're all that way. Look what Paul says here, verses 3 and 4. Do how much? Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, I don't know about you. Yes, actually, I do know about you, because we're all the same. We all have this propensity to put ourselves first. That's where relation problems come from. Not thinking of others as more important than ourselves. But here Paul is saying, if we're going to be the lights to the world, if we're going to, to be the kind of people that appreciate the body of Christ and that aim at what Christ is calling us to be, then we have to understand also how to embrace the attitude that he's telling us here. Because verse 5 is like a hinge on a door. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The one he's just talked about where you do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And the, it's looking forward to what he's about to say. How do you do that? Well, we need that. So the first thing we need to see about Jesus, if we're going to embrace his attitude, we need to see that he lived his life from a complete position of security. Notice verse 6 who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul's going to get into some deep water here, and we're going to hopefully wade through it together. But although he existed is a little bit of a wordy translation. The original language simply says existing. Existing. And I want to keep that present participle because what it does is it communicates that Jesus is always existing. He existed in eternity past. He exists now. He exists in eternity future. He is just simply existing. So who, speaking of Jesus, existing in the form of God. Now when you read that as an American and as an English speaker, you tend, we tend to think in the form of but not really, but that's not what it means at all. You see, form here is morphe. It means the essence, the very, that Jesus existing perpetually was also the essence of God the Father and God the Spirit in every way. And so when you look at Jesus, you see God. Paul's point here is that in his incarnation, Jesus never became less than who he was as very God of very God. He goes on to say, and this is very important here to understand, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think the King James is a little confusing here in the way it renders that, but this is why I went to the New American Standard because it seems to be clearer. Let me try to unpack that for you. Jesus knowing exactly who he is and being confident in all the glories that were his as creator and sustainer of the universe before his incarnation did not feel as he was coming to earth to, 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 to bring redemption to God's people. He did not feel the need to grasp at anything and try to retain what he was. That's what it's saying here. But he willingly submitted to the will of God in order to bring you and me to God. Otherwise, we would be spending eternity in the lake of fire. He made that declaration of dependency. You know, we get in trouble every time when we act independently of God. Every time. 
If we try to grasp something that we rightfully, uh, th- that we feel like we should retain as ours, like comfort or control or maybe even relationships, power, position, prestige, any of those things, rather than living wholly submitted to his sovereign and benevolent will. Now, we are not here speaking of a mindless passivity either or just a mere resignation to suffering. No. Jesus' attitude was a conscious submission to the will of God as he could see what was ahead of him and how he was going to bring redemption to the earth, to to the people of God. He could see it and he willingly submitted because God is the blessed controller of all things. And anybody, Jesus knew that better than anybody. As Peter writes his first epistle, he gives us a window. He opens the window a little bit to see something about Jesus, the night in which he suffered most. And it's in 1 Peter 2.23 that it says this, that Jesus, present tense again, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is living from a position of security. Christ exemplified this perfect and absolute submission because he lived in perfect and absolute security with who he was in God. Now somebody may be listening and thinking, but I'm not Jesus. Well, that's true enough, and neither am I. But we must realize that the whole point of this passage is that we are to have the attitude of Christ, that we can arise arise up to this calling. Contextually, that's exactly the reason Paul is saying this about Jesus, because of the security that he lived before the Lord. So, with that in mind, with with knowing that his example is, is our pathway, we too, who are you in Christ? You have received of his hand all the blessings of heaven and nothing according to your works, but all because of his grace. That is a very, very secure position to be in. Secondly, verse 7 says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Christ sought the lowest place. All of our sin issues rise from self-interest when we allow our own hearts to be the center of our universe, as it were. But Christ emptied himself. Here is is the person who is actually the center of the universe. And he empties himself. Does not mean, by the way, that he became less than God in his incarnation. Nothing about his divine personhood changed became less than God in his incarnation. He was always very God, a very God. In fact, just the opposite is meant by the text. He did not give up anything of of any part of his divine being, but he added to his divine being humble humanity. It is much like when you become a parent. You don't stop being anything you were before you were a parent. But you've added to all that you are now this responsibility of parenthood. Jesus perpetually existing as the essence of God took 
on added to what he perpetually was the form of a bond servant and was made in the likeness of men. As fully God, he emptied himself, reaching for the lowest place, the place of a bondservant, in order to fulfill God's will. What did that look like in his life? Let me walk you through a couple of things. First of all, in his birth. Think about who he was. He who was very God of very God, the eternally existing as the second person of the exalted Godhood. He exchanged that for a humble birth and meager circumstances. He lived his life in obscurity. He had all this heavenly glory, and yet he comes to earth to live without notoriety and in obscurity. He lived his life in submission to God and man. He who existed in complete and absolute self-sufficiency with no need of any kind now would require the nourishment at his mother's breast. He would need Joseph and Mary and his extended family as he was growing up. He would need contributions from others during his ministry. He who sovereignly created all that is and ruled from heaven now said as a man, I need to be about my father's business. He also lived with limitations. He was omnipresent, and yet he laid that aside for a body and the inability to be at all places at once, but he could only be in one place at a time. And he submitted to the Father in everything. In his, we see it in his experiences as a man of sorrows. He was the living word, and that he would be misunderstood by those he came to serve. He created humanity with the innate need for family and friends, and when he needed it the most, all of these intimate relationships would go by, go by the wayside. In his suffering, he who was perfect justice would suffer false accusation and be condemned as a common criminal. He knew no sin, ever. You know, I look forward to heaven, that first breath of heavenly air when I don't have to deal with this sinful being anymore. But Jesus never knew that. And yet he became sin for us on Calvary, bearing the iniquity that was ours and satisfying God's wrath against us. And in his death... He held the keys to life and death. And he submitted himself to being killed by his own creatures. And unlike us, none of these sufferings came upon him surprisingly. But being able to see all things as he eternally existed before his incarnation, he was fully aware of what was involved and moved forward willingly to fulfill the will of God. He took the lowest place, emptied himself, taking the essence of a bond servant and coming in the outward appearance of men. And just like Jesus came 
to fulfill God's redemptive agenda, you and I also have been commissioned with that same agenda. Our lives, as we live out there clearly and distinctly in submission to God, being conformed to Jesus in the everyday world that he's placed us, will bring attention to him as God has designed. If we live in security of who we are in Christ, if we take the lowest position. Now let me, let me unpack that just a little bit for you. What does it mean? What circumstances, think about your own life just for a minute. What circumstances has God called you to walk through that may be painful or inconvenient, degrading, distasteful, but that God might sovereignly use governing his agenda and accomplishing his purposes through those circumstances in your life? See, we tend to see what's on the surface. But if we have Christ's attitude, then we will understand that God is doing something beyond the surface. God's in the business of glorifying himself, brothers and sisters. And it is not up to us how he does that. I don't know anybody that loves to suffer. I know when people go through difficult physical experiences that involve surgery or pain or whatever, the, the, the thing that we think the most is, why is this happening? And that's not, it's not wrong to ask that question. But let me give you a better question to ask. What now? Yes, this is upon me. What does God want of me now? Because God is going to glorify himself. The Bible says that the whole earth will someday be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How's he doing that now? By redeeming people for himself. By calling people. And it is his prerogative how he uses you in the world to accomplish that. So, has anybody experienced circumstantial hardness? Taking the low road, taking the lowest position means that we humble our hearts and we receive this, this position, these circumstances that God has sovereignly brought into our lives and we learn the lessons he has for us. And, and we, we learn that these dark times are to stimulate us in our vision toward him and our desires for him more. Do we have, anybody have broken relationships? I'm not looking for hands here. We've all experienced broken relationships on some level. That's why I can ask the question. I know it. But the low position the Christ-like position is that we seek to make things right by owning up to our part in the wrong and seeking to speak the truth in love. Is there turmoil in our hearts over sin's power and its presence? I know there is. There is in mine and there is in yours. The low position means that we grieve over our sin and that, that cost the Son of God his life. And that possibly eclipses people's ability to see Jesus because we are still sinful. That's, having the, the, that's taking the low position. That's taking the attitude of Christ. So let me ask you another question. What brings more attention to God? That he keep all trouble away from you? Well, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> or that he allows trouble and distress into your life and you not only 
love him in the midst of it. You grow because of it. And Jesus is seen in you because he's made more clear and you've conformed more to him in the midst of it. Which brings more glory to God. Because the world will look at you and like, there, there's something, that they go through the same things I do. And yet, their spirit, there's something about that person that is different. I can see God in them. That's why we need to understand how to embrace the attitude of Christ. He lived from that position of security. He reached for the lowest place, and he obeyed at all costs. It says in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If anyone ever had the right to do his own will, it was Jesus. He always existed in perfection, and his will was never self-centered it was always holy and perfect and righteous. But God's plan in the heart of Jesus was greater than his own holy and perfect self-sufficiency. And he chose the pathway of servanthood. Because that was the will of God. He chose the pathway of obedience. Even this unimaginable pain of crucifixion and death which we unpacked on Easter. Because that was the will of God. Most of the time our obedience has limits to it. But to have Christ's attitude is to obey to the fullest. Obey at all costs, even if it comes to the point of laying down one's life. Any of us who have served in the military understood that when we donned the uniform, we also accepted the calling that we might have to lay down our lives. It's part of the package. The reality is that our brothers and sisters across the world know something that most of us Americans never know, and that is that your life is required of you sometimes. That may happen here. We're not there yet. But let me tell you where we are. God's people need to be willing to die to themselves daily. Our deaths begin with the circumstances of everyday life where we daily submit to not my will, but yours, Lord, be done so that Jesus can be formed in us and Christ can be seen. So if our benevolent master, and that's who God is, he's a benevolent master, if he determines that our lives should be hard or that we should have a sickness, because remember, if you believe God is sovereign, nothing else really needs to be said. Once, I love what R.C. Sproul said. Once you get on that train, you don't get off. <laughs> because God, if he rules, he rules. And, and we can't complain about anything because he has determined that this should be part of our lives. So if he determines that hardness or sickness or difficulty or even death be a part of life, Christ's attitude in us would be that I'm expendable for the gospel. I'm expendable for the glory of God. Let it be, Lord. Let it be. Jim Elliott understood this. You may remember that name. He was part of a team of five in the 50s who were trying to win a, a tribe in South America to Christ. And, and he wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Dear ones, how do we deal with difficulty and disappointment and heartache and injustice and 
all manner of earthly affliction. Well, let me say a couple of things here. First of all, it's heaven where tears are wiped away. It's heaven where sorrow is removed. Remember, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is with us now. He's walking this life with us. But God designs that dark background where he places his gem so that the world can see the beauty of what God is doing. He designs that. For his glory. It makes us more heavenly minded. It purges us of sin. Peter said he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it produces, it works to produce this attitude of Christ that we've been commanded to have here. Because Jesus is the one the world needs to see most. Amen. He, the world needs to see Jesus. But remember, they're blind. That's what the scripture says. They have no ability to cognitively connect the dots and see who Jesus Christ is. They need to be born again. And in order for that to happen, God gives a visual aid, and that's his people. A visual aid. We are those visual aids. Appreciating what God has done in the body of Christ, mutually depending on the wisdom and spiritual maturity of the gifts that God has given us. Aiming at unity and selflessness. And imitating Jesus, who lived his life from a position of security, reached for the lowest place, and obeyed at all costs. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, how much we need you. There is no single part of this we can do in our own strength. We are grateful that you have given us new life when we believed that as we trusted that your sacrifice on Calvary was enough to satisfy the Heavenly Father's wrath against us, that we were born again. That his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, Lord, and we, we give great thanks for that. And we know that we operate from a position of security because of that. Lord, help us in our wills to serve one another, reaching for the lowest place, to obey your word at all costs, that we would die daily to our own selfishness and that we would live unto Christ so that your glory is seen in us as your people. So that the world takes notice that we are yours and that you are redeeming a people for yourself, Lord. We're grateful for what you're doing in us and through us. And we pray that you would expand that for your glory. Amen. If you're not a member with us today and you are a born-again person, someone who's trusted in Christ, we invite you to join us at the table where we celebrate the Lord's sacrifice in our reading.